Gracias. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. And thank you so, so much, everybody, for coming out. Um, it means a great deal to me. This is the very first time I'm being published in the United States. And uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've come over especially to launch the book um, here. So I'm, I'm really touched, uh, particularly coming out on a cold night. And also I'm, I'm very aware that this is a, a strange and for many people quite distressing time in the life of this country. And I'm, I'm I'm, every time I've, I've spoken to an American audience here, I've been aware that I'm asking people to pay attention to something that seems quite far removed from the situation here when a lot of people have many other things on their minds. So I really do appreciate um, the support and I hope that it can be a bit of a distraction for, you know, half an hour. Um, and thanks so much to all the old and new friends that I see in the audience. Uh, I, I really do. It warms my heart to see you here. Thank you. So um, my book is called Nineveh, and just to give you a little bit of context, it's set in Cape Town, which is my hometown in South Africa. I don't know how many of you have any familiarity with, with Cape Town, but it's the southernmost city in Africa. Um, it's an interesting city. It uh, has an interesting conjunction of urban area and wilderness. It has a very famous mountain, Table Mountain, right in its center, and it's also at the conjunction of two oceans at the, at the tip of Africa. And um, this book is also written uh, from a place of some sort of anxiety about, about change. South Africa as a country is, uh, has a, uh, quite a turbulent political history, as I think you will all be aware of. Um, initially a Dutch colony, then an English colony, uh, then, it, then the apartheid regime, and now the, the post-apartheid regime, um, all of which have been quite traumatic and have involved a, a good deal of quite traumatic social transformation, which is ongoing today. Uh, it's still a politically turbulent place. Um, as a long-term resident of Cape Town, um, we have all witnessed a great deal of change in the actual fabric of, of uh, the city, um, demographic change, uh, rapid growth of the city. And I think this book arose out of a kind of anxiety about that sort of change, an anxiety for the future, um, anxiety about... Um, unpredictable social change happening around you and you know under your uh, the very the very ground under your feet shifting in unpredictable ways and what i chose to write about or to write about as a kind of vehicle for exploring those fears and anxieties is uh, a brand new housing estate called Nineveh which is is quite typical of uh, some of the more sort of tasteless new money ventures in cape town there was a big housing bubble and enormous stretches um, of the otherwise unspoilt surroundings of Cape Town were built over with these, these brand new gleaming housing estates for the very wealthy. It's also a town of enormous um, inequality, social and, and financial inequality. And I'm sure you're familiar with, with this phenomenon of these, these enormous housing estates, which quite often now are left largely empty um, and only inhabited briefly over the season. So it's set there, and my main character is... Uh, Katya, who is a pest extermination expert, uh, who is hired to deal with an unfortunate problem taking place in this in this otherwise pristine uh, housing estate, which is it's unfortunately overrun by mysterious beetles. Uh, Katya is a pest extermination expert with a difference. However, she is uh, humane. That's her speciality. So she refuses to to kill anything, even the the lowliest bug or grub or beetle. So she will she will painstakingly remove them and um, relocate them somewhere 
somewhere else, which is, of course, not a particularly efficient or rational way to be a pest disposal expert. Um, and, and ultimately, of course, her attempt to cleanse this place and make it pure again and free from the bugs is a, is a, a vain dream because um, the world doesn't work that way and urban environments are a lot more complex and mutually entangled than that and purity and separation can never really be possible. I, and I think what I, was, what I was trying to explore with that is just this idea that in these complicated modern urban ecosystems we are all human and non-human deeply entangled in each other's lives and we have to find a way to, uh, to give and take, to give up a little bit of control over our environments and find, find ways to coexist and that actually that is not a source of anxiety but can also be potentially a, a source of um, of, um, of excitement, of possibility, um, and of hope. So I'm going to just plunge in with a little reading from the beginning of the book where we meet Katya and her assistant, who's her rather hapless nephew, Toby, who are arriving on the scene of, of a, a new job. This is not at Nineveh, but this is where she eventually meets the, the guy who will employ her for this big housing estate job. The chapter is called Swarm. Caterpillars? Easy, thinks Katya. Even these, thick-clustered, obscuring a tree from bowl to crown and shivering their orange hairs. Caterpillars she can deal with. Still, it's a strange sight, this writhing tree, a tree in mortification, particularly here where the perfect lawn slopes down to the grand white house below, between clipped flower beds flecked with pink and blue. Off to the side, just in the corner of her vision, a gardener is trimming the edge of the lawn, his eyes on Katya and the boy, and not on his scissoring blades. Rising behind the scene is the Constantiaberg. It's an autumn day, cool but bright. The mountains look their age, wrinkled and worn, and shouted down by the boisterous sky. It's a lovely afternoon for a garden party. But at the centre of this picture is an abomination, this single tree sleeved with a rind of invertebrate matter with plump spiked bodies the colour of burnt sugar. It's possible to imagine that the whole tree has been eaten away, replaced by a crude facsimile made of caterpillar flesh. Toby, gloves, Katya says, snapping her fingers and holding them out stiffly. Her nephew rolls his eyes, particularly effective with those large pale orbs, green with the whites visible clean around the irises. But he leans down from his superior height to press a crumpled ball of latex into her palm. The gloves are important. Katya is not at all squeamish about cold-blooded, squishy things, but some caterpillars have irritant spines. Thick gardening gloves are too unwieldy for this fine work, and Katya also prefers the feel of the latex. It deadens, but in tamping down the background stimuli, it also seems to isolate specific sensations. The gravelly landscape of bark, the warmth of skin without its friction... The gloves are part of the uniform, along with the steel-toed boots and lurid overalls. Her signature colour, poison-toed green, wormslung green. While they are working, the uniform separates her and Toby from the pastel colours of lawn and flowers. They are all business. Katya shakes out the gloves and works them onto her hands. We need to get some talc, she says. Didn't I ask you to get some talc? I roll. Yeah, yeah, Toby says, fiddling with his silver blonde hair, which is scraped back into a scraggy bun with a rubber band. He's been growing it ever since he left school a few months ago. He's always ripping off the elastic or jamming it closer to his scalp by yanking at the strands, a sight that makes Katya's own hair prickle at the roots. 
aunt and nephew both have their bangs pulled away from their faces in a practical way, although if you look closer the impression is diluted. The hair clips are sparky, meant for little girls. Toby has supplied them and Katya wonders about their source. They are the kind of thing a teenage girl might wear to be cute, one of several recent signs that her nephew might be in intimate contact with young ladies. What is he now, 17? Half her own age, a calculation that dismays her. What has she gained in that double time? Come, pull it together, she says. He smiles at her appeasingly. Toby's smile has a comic quality. His teeth are small and gappy, milk toothy almost. Pink, clean gums like a puppy's. With his mouth open, he seems much younger than his years. Katya often wants to tell him to relax. In repose, when he thinks no one is looking, his face falls into lovely, somber lines. Like his mother, slight melancholy suits him. The uniform fits Toby better than it does her. They don't make them in short, busty women's sizes. Katya's is rolled in the leg and tight in the chest. You can get Chinese ones made for smaller people, although not for ones with bosoms. But Toby, slender and tall, fits his like a bricklayer, like a ditch digger, like someone who's meant to be wearing it. Toby's job largely is to do the heavier lifting. There is surprising strength in these spidery limbs. Katya watches him as he positions the first plywood box and the tin chute, all made to her careful specifications. Once everything is in place, he steps back and holds one arm behind his back at the elbow as he stares up at the tree. The posture is hard to pull off with excess meat on your torso or with breasts. It's a pose Katya's seen adopted by lean farm labourers out in the country. Like them, Toby knows how to conserve his energy. It is in fact the same stance as the lanky gardeners who stands downslope with his arms and his bent leg mirroring Toby's. His overalls faded blue to Toby's bright green, his skin dark to Toby's paleness. It's like they're waiting to perform some kind of symmetrical dance. Time to move into action. First, Katya appraises the swarm, walking around the tree and glancing up and down, guessing at numbers. Then she leans in, nose inches from the thin dorsal hairs of the creatures on the bark. You have to find the chief caterpillar, the general, a general and not a queen. To Katya, disregarding the facts of biology, all caterpillars are male, foot soldiers. Perhaps it is their small, helmeted heads. With one hand, Katya reaches in, breaches the flow, and picks out a robust individual, one who looks fat and juicy and determined, and with a particularly fine ruff of orange fur. It's best if the client is there to witness this, this ritual, to see the skill involved. But in this case, the client is so repelled that she's observing from a distance of 100 metres. Katya can see her down there in a blue dress, hands on broad hips, watching as waiters and servants scurry behind her. Music is striking up. It's a classy party. They have employed a string quartet. There's a line of white-sheeted trestle tables, caterers laying out plates and glasses. Soon the guests will be here. Katya places her prize wriggler on the rim of the tin spout, head downwards, urging him on with little prods. Then the trick is to get the next one in line latched on, and then the next, following on the numerous soft heels of his brother. Once they're in the narrowing chute, it's hard for them to reverse direction back into the stream. The system is designed that way. Once you get some movement going, it's easier. Caterpillars like migrating wildebeest, very small, slow ones, have a strong herding impulse. They sense a stirring. They start to push. Perhaps they feel some dim invertebrate anxiety, that the swarm has not yet been consummated, that this is not the right tree, that a better tree awaits, that they will be left behind. 
This is as far as her study of caterpillar psychology goes. Soon there's a modest caravan of furry beasts marching down the spout. A conga line. Once it's happening, it's beautiful in a way. A river of caterpillar flesh flowing down the tree, peeling away, leaving the branches stripped and affronted. Once the leader drops off the end of the spout and into the box, there's no going back, no turning tail. Yee-haw, says Toby. He jiggles side to side, excited by the slow stampede of the worms. Caterpillars are easy. So I'm going to flip ahead a few pages to a bit where she's done the caterpillar job and she's contemplating her, her philosophy, the philosophy of her profession here. It's strange what disgusts people. Who would scorn the friendship of a gecko, for example, golden-eyed, translucent-skinned, toes splayed on a farmhouse wall? Who could resent a long-legged spider knitting its silver in the corner of a room? But they do. People will pay to have them killed, poisoned, destroyed. Katya does not destroy. This is her skill, her niche. So she will re relocate a wasp nest, reroute a caterpillar invasion, clear a roof of nesting pigeons, wrangle housefuls of mangy cats. She does not turn up her nose at cockroach infestations, gatherings of mice, strange migrations of bees and porcupines. She's even faced down baboons, although that's unusually robust work. Generally, she prefers the smaller beasts. She encourages spiders and is friendly to pigeons, which others unkindly call rats of the air. Her philosophy is to respect any creature that gets by in the city, ducking and diving, snatching at morsels, day by day negotiating a new truce with the humans among whom they live. Survivors, squatters and invaders, tough buggers, they have their place. Mostly they do no real harm. They're objectionable only because they've wandered from their proper zones or because they trigger human shudders. But Katya does not shudder, not ever. Slinging a snake round her neck like a scarf, the dry scales smooth as water on her latexed palms. No problem. This is the job. Helping these small sojourners in a strange land. Putting the wild back in the wild, keeping the tame tame. Policing borders. Sometimes part of her wants to reverse the flow, mix it up, take this box of caterpillars, for example, and tip it out in that Constantia palace they just left, even if it means chaos, screams, and ruined dresses, soft bodies crushed into the lawn. But that's her dad's voice, his angry humour. Len Grubbs, a lifelong vermin man, an exterminator. He never bothered too much with keeping things straight or putting them back in their rightful places. Traps and poison, that was what he knew. He was often bitten once by a puff adder. Even in that agony, he'd taken care to beat the snake to death. It was hand-to-hat combat, the way Len Grubbs did the job. Katya's work by comparison is a relatively gentle business, one concerned with rescue and cleansing. But it brings out this mischief in her, this hardness, perhaps because of what she deals in, what her dad dealt in before her, the unloved, the unlovely. So I just have one more small extract to read um, from the beginning, in fact, exactly the middle of the book. Um, and this is just a little, kind of a little contextual passage which um, does nothing particularly for the story and initially I was going to delete it from the book because that's what they tell you, right? If it's not driving the story forward, you need to delete it ruthlessly. But I kept it and it's subsequently become a piece that I read quite often out of this book because it's I feel it's it's quite it's quite central and quite pivotal to the story, um, and it's just a snapshot of the city of Cape Town, and really this book is about 
is about shifting cities, changeable cities, and uh, that, that, that kind of um, uneasy experience of, of living in a city that is changing around you. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's at a hinge in the story. She's uh, arrived at the estate of Nineveh. She started doing her job, but nothing has really happened yet. And she takes a little walk um, down the road to go to, a, to do some grocery shopping. And she, st she wanders into a random mall and into a random little bookshop. She finds one of those old photographic books where vintage black and white photos of Cape Town are compared with the same views taken in modern times. Long Street, Camps Bay, now and then, District 6, alive and then in ruins. The antique harbour with its elegant pier and the bleakly triumphal foreshore that was built on top of it, pushing back the sea by force of will, shadowless in the 60s glare. What is striking is how everything is different, which is the point of the book, but also how neither the old nor the new seems obviously preferable. The monochrome pictures of Victorian Cape Town seem dreary, stricken with a kind of lassitude, the streets strangely empty. The 50 snaps are stultifying in their own way, those overbright Kodachrome skies, the street scenes populated entirely by white people, except for the picturesque flower sellers, of course. In none of the pictures does the city seem to be sitting easy with itself. Only the mountain and sea are serene, altering at a far more dignified pace. It's a disorientating experience looking at this book. Each person snapping the shutter had been trying to fix the city as it was, but there is no fixing such a shifting, restless thing as a discontented city. If you strung these pictures together in a giant flip book or put them together to make a jerky film reel year on year, the city would be hopping and jiggling, twitching and convulsing in a frenzy of urban ants in the pants. Colonial cities are itchier than most, no doubt, fidgeting in the sub-Saharan light, harsh even in a sepia world. So little of the original Cape Town remains, just the heavy star of the castle pinning down its surroundings like a brooch or a five-pointed policeman's badge. How silly to imagine that anything built now will stand for years to come. Cut your shelves, the book again, butting it carefully against the flimsy partition of the shop wall. This place certainly will not last long enough to feature in photos of the future. Thank you very much. Yay, Henrietta Rosinas, you guys. You can find her at her website. It's, it's like this. It goes Henrietta Enos hyphen. No, wait. Henrietta Rose hyphen Enos dot com. Yes? Yes. All right, you guys. The next storyteller is just fantastic, and we're celebrating her book, In Plain View, and she's here right now, Julie Shaguni. Hello. Um, it's an honor to read tonight with Henrietta. Uh, I read her book, Nineveh, just last week after the election, and I was so um, dispirited. I really, um, all of the wind was taken out of uh, my sails for my upcoming um, publication. But I really found myself in the little caterpillars, the line of them that, that Katya gets into the box. You didn't get to the end of that part, but it's a really uh, lovely scene, and um, I recommend it to everyone. I, I'm very pleased to read with, Kat, with Katya, with <laughs> Henrietta, and um, I want to thank um, my editor, uh, Olivia Smith, 
I've published uh, several books before this one, but I really never had um, an editor go over my work the way that Olivia did, and it really taught me a lot about the writing process. Um, this book has been a revelation about little things. When I when my first book came out back in 1995, um, I was kind of at the top of the world, I thought I was a very important um, author. And that sense of importance had has been stripped away from me through the years to now when my book comes out, I, I kind of, uh, I feel uh, small and humble and very grateful to the people who um, support me. So thank you, Olivia. Thank you to my agent and partner, Lori Liss, who has gone the length to... Um, to make sure that my book um, comes out in the world. And my parents are here tonight. Um, I want to thank them. Um, and I'll tell you a little story about how, um, how this work started and my aunties who have supported me through the years and my friends and former students. Thank you all for coming. Um, so each, each of my books, I think from the start, I have written because there's something that I don't understand. Um, so I think maybe in some ways that might be a shortcoming, but as well it's um, a need that I have to figure out something that um, is to me mysterious. And at the start of um, this book, I had three um, daughters who I'd raised, and um, they were all growing into their own beings, and I was um, interested in the question of whether or not I'd given them enough. So they were all kind of who they were going to be, and um, you've probably all heard it said that personality is formed roughly by the age of four, so you got to do a good job by then, because if you don't, then there's nothing much you can do, and if you have, then people are going to make their way into the world. So I thought, okay, well, that's good, because I know I worked really hard. I had a great childhood. My mother was a great mother, and I feel um, in some way fortified. No matter what happens, I think I'm going to be okay. I really never worried about that, because I had a great childhood, and, um, you know, I'm strong because of that. So I came up with a character, Dai-Dai, and I decided that I would split her off into um, two characters, Dai-Dai, who is, in this book, a museum curator, and um, Satsuki. So in my mind, they were the same character. They had the same personality. But Dai-Dai um, was loved by her mother. She had a great childhood. And Satsuki was loved up to a point. And then her mother disappeared. So the question then became, well, is Satsuki still going to be okay? Because she had a great childhood up until the age of four. But then everything went wrong. So the book sought to answer that question. Um, it, let's see. So it starts off with um, Dai-Dai, who is a museum character, curator. And her husband, um, Hiroshi, is the head of an Asian American studies program. Um, Hiroshi has just been given the directorship of his program, and one of his students, Satsuki, comes from Japan to be part of an Asian American studies program. Um, and really, uh, the first part of the book is about um, Dai-Dai begins to question um, Satsuki. Why is she there? Uh, how, what is the nature of her interest in, in Hiroshi? And... Um, Spring break comes around, and Satsuki has been to Dai Dai and Hiroshi's house. Um, 
and she invites Dai to go with her to Japan so to visit her father and her father um, she's been estranged from her father for many years and um, in part because she wants to be close to Satsuki because she doesn't really want to let her out of her sight, Dai Dai agrees to go. And so the, the section that I was going to read tonight um, takes place in Mito, in Satsuki's father's house in Japan. They've just arrived the night before. There was a big storm. Um, Dai Dai is out of sorts. She can hear the wind blowing through the house. Um, the father, Ichiro, uh, is a businessman. He sells art. He has been in Sweden, and he's just returned home. So Dai has met him, and she's found him to be very strange. She no longer has any sense of why she agreed to come to Japan to be in Ichido's house with um, Satsuki, who she doesn't really trust. Um, but she wakes up the next morning, and, and that begins this section. Um, let's see. Since it's in the middle there, let's see. The... Um, I think the only other thing that you have to that you might need to know beforehand is that um, Satsuki has taken Dai Dai for a tour of her father's house, and um, kind of at the center of his house is a painting done by Satsuki's mother, and. Um, Dai was very interested in looking at this painting, and it's something that's stuck in her consciousness, and that painting will um, come up in this chapter. So this is chapter 15. The fine weather seemed a negation of the night and day before, promising that everything might turn out to be just fine were she simply to accept the day in all its loveliness. Stretching from the futon where she'd slept, Dai reached a hand over the side of the bedding, brushing her fingers along the tight weave of the tatami mats. She'd lapsed into a daydream when she heard Satsuki's voice calling tentatively from the other side of the sliding door. Dai, if you're awake, may I come in? Of course, come in, she said, wrapping the thick bedding around her shoulders. After removing her house slippers, Satsuki scooted herself beside Dai. The two lay side by side, Dai beneath and Satsuki on top of the bedding. Did you sleep well? she said sweetly. I did, Dai told her, groggy but unable to remember the dreams from the night before that had disrupted her sleep. You? I woke before the sun was up, thinking of all the places we need to go. Finding Dai's hand, Satsuki brought it to her cheek, which felt unusually smooth and cold. I'm very excited today, she said, perched upright like a cat before she settled back down on the futon. Do you know that you are the first friend ever to visit me here? Really? Dai guessed she was exaggerating or qualifying visit to mean overnight guest, or perhaps she meant first visitor from abroad. Tell me what it was like for you growing up, she said clasping Dai's hand in her elegant fingers. Did you have friends who stayed overnight at your house? I've heard that American girls do sleepovers. I used to fantasize about what it would be like to have a best friend. I was very lonely. As Satsuki talked, Dai thought of Louise. They'd spent most weekends at each other's homes, a fact of her childhood she'd taken for granted. Did you really never have a friend sleepover? Dai asked, her thoughts wandering back to the painting Ichido kept apart from the rest of the house. I'm not lying, she said. In the stillness of the room, pinned beneath the covers, she could feel Satsuki's heartbeat. She'd matched her breathing to Dai's and the scent of her freshly washed hair, along with the bitter bass note that was uniquely Satsuki, swelled Dai's senses. Her mention of loneliness brought to mind the strange sounds Dai had heard the night before, and her tour of the house Satsuki had grown up in, where she'd become privy to a part of her life she'd not shared with anyone. 
Pulling herself up and sliding her feet back through her house slippers, Satsuki clasped her hands together with a child's glee. Saitoshi Ingu, eikimashoka? She called, I want to show you everything, and it's a perfect day for sightseeing. That morning, they filled their stomachs with the traditional Japanese breakfast of rice, steamed fish, and soup, accompanied, of course, by her signature tea. Satsuki outlined the travel plans. They'd start at Kairakuen, a park where she and her mother had once taken their daily walks. The experience of the day before, of feeling herself to be such an oddity, had left Dai less than excited about venturing into the outside world. But her hesitation dissipated as Satsuki and she traversed the nearly deserted path that led away from Ichido's home. It was a beautiful morning, indeed, and unlike the airport crowd the day before, the locals didn't appear to notice her at all. The plum blossoms are reported to be in full bloom, Satsuki's pace quickened as they approached the entrance gate. I haven't taken this path in 25 years, but I think of Kairakuen as my home. It's the place my mind travels to when I long for something familiar. It might seem strange to say this, but I don't really have a home. My father's home is more like a museum than a home, and my father is more like a curator than a parent. Reaching behind her, Satsuki took hold of Daidai's hand. This was the path she'd taken with her mother. She said they'd walked along the interior wall, turning into a small, and she turned into a child again as she matched her pace to Daidai's. Daidai felt sorry for her as she did for Ritsuko, who, according to her daughter, had ventured out from the small box she'd been born into and whose life had ended abruptly, thousands of miles from where it had begun. Having slept in the house that Satsuki described as a museum, she felt the loneliness of Satsuki's childhood. Bit by bit, Satsuki's history had taken root in Daidai's consciousness, replacing her own past for one more compelling and refined, and most importantly, more knowable. I think I can imagine what it was like for you growing up here, she said, aware that being in the park had kindled Satsuki's recollections of her early childhood. I was content to be with my mother, Satsuki said, seeming to have retreated further into memory. I don't like to think of what life was like afterwards on my own. You said you grew up at a boarding school. Datsuki, uh, Daidai recalled the night the police had called to inform Satsuki that her mother had been found dead. She hadn't known enough then to be able to imagine how Satsuki had lived, but Satsuki's childhood felt palpable here in Mito. Isn't it rare for children in Japan to live away from home? I spent nine years at, at Shodai Gakuin. You're correct that children who attend boarding school in Japan are at once set apart from the rest. The vast majority of Japanese children are raised by their parents, but even at Shodai, I was different. From the start, I learned to evade personal questions to save myself from humiliation. It must have been hard to adjust. It was. But how about later? You're so beautiful. I'm sure you had boyfriends. I had only one. Unlike you, I'm sure you had many boyfriends before Hiroshi. Not really. I was always very focused on my studies. Clever Daidai, she smiled. Bookworm Daidai. I wasn't like you, not nearly so smart or well-versed. When I think back, I've always been a person who required social contact, even though I held a part of myself back. I felt tremendous shame at being on my own at such an early age, but I managed to coast along amidst such a socially charged atmosphere as Shodai. I think anyone at the time would have said I was well-liked. I was popular because I made sure that the facts of my past never came under scrutiny, and therefore no one had reason to think ill of me. No one had the slightest clue what I was made of, but people liked me because I offered back a pleasing reflection of themselves. This wasn't a difficult thing to do. I've always believed there's something to like and admire in just about anyone. 
and it's far more pleasant to see and cultivate the good than to dwell on a person's fallibilities. It's also human nature to avoid being ridiculed or shunned. I'd seen classmates being made fun of for shortcomings that seemed far less grievous than mine. I learned from them what parts of myself not to reveal. You felt inadequate because you weren't with your mother, Dada asked, recalling the blind figure from the portrait. I believe there must be something wrong with me for her to leave me, she said. Sotsky spoke of her sadness, yet her tone was even and devoid of emotion, the same quality she'd referenced when speaking about her father the night before. Do you find it strange that the figure in the portrait painted by your mother was blind? Dada said, wondering aloud. A painting is like a wish. Sotsky said, a blind person represents a desire not to see. Clearly she thought this through. But what would your mother not want to see? Perhaps you should tell me, Sotsky smiled, exposing the first full set of her overlapping teeth. You are the curator, the one who understands far better than I do about art. Sotsky was flattering her, but why would she go die-die into speaking in, to speak something she most likely already knew? When you were talking just now about how often... Uh, how you offered your classmates back a pleasing reflection of themselves. I thought of the mirror your mother painted, Satsuki died I mused, speaking candidly of the image that came to her mind. A mirror can be deceptive, Satsuki remarked, indicating that Dai had gotten close but hadn't hit her mark. A person can never stow away the significant details of her life. Memory may become dislodged, but it doesn't just vanish. Was she talking about her mother, herself? What connection was there between the mirror and memory? I'm afraid I don't understand, Dai said. A person's interior can grow stagnant, just like a room left for too long without air or sunlight. People need human interaction. I learned that at Shodai. I was lonely for my mother after she disappeared. I'd been alone in the world until I met you and Hiroshi. Before the two of you, I never had people I considered true friends. The subject had shifted, or perhaps it had merely broadened to include Dai. They'd stopped walking ensconced in a thick forest of plum trees. The graceful arches and darkened boughs contrasted sharply with the delicate blossoms of the plum trees, which highlighted Satsuki's fine bone structure. Under the clear blue sky, a spray of petals fell to the ground, shaken loose by the storm the night before. This day, your company, I'm so happy... Dai said, feeling the world open up and any space between them dissipate. I don't think I'll ever forget this moment. Thank you for bringing me here. Japan is very beautiful, Satsuki concurred. I doubt there is anything like this anywhere else in the world. But just as she'd spoken, a gust of wind caused a flurry of pink petals to spin upwards into the air, and a chill ran up Dai's spine. Standing beneath the branches, looking up at the sky, she wondered if Satsuki felt it too. Wasn't that strange? Satsuki smiled and changed the subject as if prompted to do so by the shifting wind. During my sophomore year, long after most of the girls had begun to date, I decided to let my guard down. With seven years at Shodai behind me, it was rare to encounter an unfamiliar face. But a new boy came that year. He was one of a handful of students who entered Shodai as a high school student to increase his chances of getting into a good university. I met him in a history class that spring, and he seemed to have a kind heart. He'd wait for me outside the classroom door, walk me in, take the seat next to me. He had gallant manners and a restrained and observant nature, unusual in boys that age. It allowed me to trust him more than the others. What was his name? Dai asked, struggling to keep track of what Satsuki was telling her. It didn't help that Satsuki was no longer addressing her directly, rather speaking off into the distance as she talked. But rather than take Dai's interruption for what it was, a sign of her desire to be attentive, Satsuki twisted her lips and focused her gaze in the distance. What does it matter? 
Is there any chance at all that you would have known him? Of course not. Upset that she'd given offense, Dadai stepped back and crouched against the slender trunk of the plum tree, hoping to give Satsuki the space she needed to continue. Conscious of her own breathing, Dadai waited, staring straight ahead until the flash of Satsuki's white teeth indicated that her breach of etiquette had been forgiven. It turns out that his family owned a vacation home on the Izu Peninsula, she began, allowing Dadai to breathe comfortably once again. When he asked if I'd like to spend a week of summer break with him in Atami, he was shocked to hear that I'd never been there. Up to that point, I'd turned down offers to go to classmates' homes, figuring such visits would open me up to questions of a personal nature. Since my father often left Japan to go on buying trips during the rainy season, I simply remained on campus over the long summer break. I didn't mind it that way. With no home to return to, I learned to find pleasure in having the space ordinarily filled with others to myself. But that year, I considered writing to my father to inquire about returning to Mito for the summer. I was old enough to stay in the house on my own, yet at the same time, I felt a strange aversion to being alone. For that reason, it seemed fortuitous to be asked by Kinji to accompany him to Atami. That was his name, by the way, Kinji. I see. Straightening her spine, Dadai pushed off from the tree trunk, for after issuing a chiding, Satsuki had begun walking away. I agreed because the invitation meant I'd spend a week less on my own, she said, turning over her shoulder to catch Dadai's response. You've been lonely, Dadai said, indicating her attentiveness as unobtrusively as possible. Yes. Satsuki stopped abruptly and turned to face her. It turned out that the house was quite large, upscale, a castle by city standards. I was given my own room, with a view lovelier than anything I could have imagined, a bay window to the east that looked straight down over the shoreline, and beyond that the Pacific Ocean stretched out as far as the eye could see. His mother rose early to prepare breakfast, and after Kinji and I had eaten, we'd venture out together on foot, carrying a lunchbox she'd packed for us. I can still remember the taste of those delightful treats inside that lunchbox, the way the sunshine felt on my bare shoulders as I walked along the narrow road that wound down to the shore. Each morning of my visit, I'd walk a circle around an old, an ancient camphor tree that stood in our path on the way to the shore. Then we'd stop at Kinomiya Shrine, where he'd light an incense stick, and I'd say a prayer. But at the end of the week, he began asking the inevitable questions about my family. Deciding it best to be candid, I told him simply that I hadn't grown up with my mother. He merely shrugged, but I can still feel the way that small gesture reverberated inside me. It felt like a wave cresting then crashing to the ground beneath my feet. I'd erected a barrier so I wouldn't have to feel the profound isolation that was part of my existence, but in his questioning of me, he managed to cross over it. Turning her gaze to the branches of the plum tree, Dadai watched its leaves flutter in the morning breeze. Satsuki seemed to be telling her a story she'd heard somewhere before, though Satsuki couldn't place where. Though Dadai, I'm sorry, couldn't place where. In that moment, I knew I'd made a mistake. Maybe you're lucky, he said, chuckling to himself, but his laughter did nothing to repair the fissure that had opened up between us. I believe I am lucky, I told him. I'm a proud person, and I tried not to take offense because I sensed that he genuinely liked me. Pushing herself upright from the tree trunk she'd been leaning against, Dadai felt the ache in her jaw from clenching her teeth. Shivering in the midday heat, she moved out into the sunlight. Later that evening, while he and I stood side by side eating our dinner at a noodle shop, he turned to me with a pitying look and said, I've often wished my mother didn't love me so much. Kenji was such an immature person. I left Izu sensing he knew nothing about heartbreak or loneliness, let alone love. 
Trotsky walked on in silence, saddened and obviously troubled by an experience from her past. Dada hadn't entirely understood the story, or Satsky's need to tell it, but recalling the admonishment she'd received when she'd interrupted, she didn't dare ask questions. A while later, as they neared the park's exit, Satsky asked for a story from Dada's childhood. By that time, her presence next to Dada had begun to feel so familiar that Dada believed they might have been friends all along. Had they really met only months before? Wanting to tell Satsuki something of her life, Dada was disturbed to find she had nothing to say. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Okay, you guys, let's do a Q&A. So come back up, Henrietta. Come on back up, Julie. And maybe you guys can share this mic. Sure it's probably quite, it's probably all right between the two of you. Yeah, sure. Slide this over for you. Go ahead, Julie. I sit on this one. <laughs> All right, questions, questions. I have a question for you, Julie. Really interesting chapter. I was wondering, you were talking about the light of the picture. Um, I'm very familiar with all mythology and the Oedipus. They say that once you're blind, physically, you're able to see the light of the truth on the left. You can see that with this. I'm asking for a spoiler, but if this refers to when she was actually seeing the truth that she wanted to blind. Yes. Um. Yeah, I had um, had some old Hokusai prints of the blind artists, and um, that was definitely true for her mother. Her mother saw something that she couldn't bear to see, and so she represented it, um, herself in the portrait, looking back into a mirror as a, a blind artist. So, yeah. Julie, do you have siblings? I do. I have one sister. She's um, just a year older than I am. Yes, Henrietta. Yes, I. Do you have a science background or biology or something like that? Yeah, I have a I have a kind of a mixed up uh, educational background. Um, I kind of resisted writing for a long time, and I went to university and I did come out of it with a with a science degree with a BSc but it was um, it, it was a very confused and chaotic BSc career it had a little pinch of everything in it um, because I could never make up my mind exactly what my vocation was so I did a little bit of everything I little, did a little bit of zoology and chemistry and mathematics and uh, paleontology and archaeology and um, in the end I kind of just threw up my hands in despair and thought, well, I might as well just uh, be a writer after all. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my, in an alternative universe, the other Henrietta is probably a paleontologist, I would say. And I do try to kind of claw my way back into that world in what I write. I'm, I'm fascinated by natural history, um, fascinated by natural history museums. Every, every town I go to, it's the first, my first stop is to go and check out the, the dinosaurs in the natural history museum. Um, I certainly have. I certainly have. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty much the first thing I did when I arrived here. Yeah. But I think 
think, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if this is a if this is a typical story of of many writers, but it took me a long time to find my my direction. And in a way, becoming a writer was a solution to all of that career anxiety and indecision. Because if you're a writer, you can dip your dip your toes into anything at all that that takes your interest, and you never have to commit to any one specialization. Um, and in many ways. Deciding to commit to being a writer was a solution for me to too much of that anxiety. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you write full-time then now? Uh, well, currently I, I do, but only because I'm enrolled in a creative writing PhD, actually. Oh. So that, that makes it possible. Um, I'm, I'm living in the UK at the moment and I'm enrolled at the University of East Anglia which has a very famous, um, it's the oldest creative writing program in the United Kingdom which has given me three years of funded writing time which is, you know, you can't really, you can't really get that stuff for love or money in any other way at the moment. Um, I don't... Uh, I've sort of made made a living out of bits and pieces of writing-related stuff for my whole adult life. I've worked as a literary editor for a long time. I've taught creative writing. I've taken up fellowships, that sort of thing. I'm sure, I don't know what your career path has been, but I think that's quite a familiar route for many writers as we patch together an existence from stuff that's vaguely related to what we really want to be doing, which is writing. What's what's your uh, personal history with with writing? Uh, Mostly teaching, though, after a certain point. Up until then, I was anything that would <laughs> pay the bills. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Julie, what do you teach? Um, I teach creative writing at the University of New Mexico. Right now I do that online. How do you, um, how do, you do a PhD in creative writing? Are you, are you knowledgeable on contemporary writing? Or how do they... <laughs> how do they... It, well, it's a... It's I mean, it's an odd thing, and it's um, historically quite a new phenomenon. I think it's existed in the States longer than it has elsewhere in the world, the idea of a practical creative writing uh, graduate degree, uh, which is largely actually just writing. So in my own case, the program I'm in, I I have to produce something, uh, a novel, in fact, and then with a shorter reflective critical essay on the process of writing the novel. Um, so no, I'm absolutely not a, um, a literary theorist. Uh, I have no real expertise in, uh, in literary analysis. Any, I'm not, I don't come from that kind of background. But on the strength of the writing I had already done, um, I was admitted into the course. It's. PhDs, we see it more of a student practice. A lot of the arts are credentialed to teach, but it's more at a master's level, sort of with the focus of a mastery of a, an art. Well, I think it came at a time, you know, when there were so many students who wanted MFAs, but the MFA didn't um, 
provide them with a way to teach. So mm -hmm. they would get to a PhD in creative writing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an ongoing uh, conflict, actually, and an unresolved debate about what exactly the nature of these graduate programs should be. Um, certainly the ones I'm familiar with, I think there's a bit of a conflict in wanting to um, combine the the, the, the practical studio element with um, with an academic element, um, and it feels to me like there's a constant strain in, in all of the all of the creative writing programs I've been involved in in South Africa as well. Between kind of it feels kind of schizophrenic, like the, the program is not entirely certain what its desired outcome is. Are we are we producing academics? Are we producing uh, working writers? Are we producing commercially successful working writers? Or are we producing interestingly experimental writers? And quite a lot of the time, I, I feel like there's, there's also this, um, this need to actually produce um, classfuls of people who are then able to go out and teach further in, in similar creative writing programs in this kind of endless cycle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, in New York about the branding or the corporization of these writing mm. programs and writing mm -hmm. ethics mm -hmm. and spot and, and doesn't that imply the whole artistic thing it's, it's sort of like gentrification <laughs> yeah oh I'm sorry go ahead oh no okay yeah yeah uh, are the insects metaphor for something else in South Africa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, bugs. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a parable element to the book. People people read it in different ways. Um, uh, for, for myself, I was trying to create a sort of a microcosm where the this little intensely complex ecosystem uh, situated on this on, on the, in the small landscape of the housing estate is 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 kind of representative of um, the the urban ecosystem involving all sorts of organisms human and, and non human um, so it 's a kind of in, in my mind it was kind of an almost an ecological metaphor um, and the insects are you know the the lowliest beings in in any complex system like that who are ultimately in the course of the of the novel reveal themselves to be in fact the most powerful because they are en masse in the process of undermining the the the, the apparently solid and permanent and overwhelmingly dominant structure of the housing estate itself um, so that's what that's what I was uh, was aiming for, um, but other people have read it differently, as 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 they will do, um, despite your best efforts. <laughs> uh, I find a lot of people, particularly non-South African readers, uh, choose to read it as a metaphor for the broader South African political situation, as um, some kind of reckoning with um, with with changing demographics of the country and uh, with people finding a way to interact with each other in the post-apartheid dispensation, um, which was never my intention exactly. Of course, people, you know, it's 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 there for people to find their own meaning in. But I kind of am I kind of am quite resistant um, to. Uh, claiming for myself the role of, of writing like some grand South African narrative because uh, pers my personal feeling is that it's probably not possible for any one person to, to do that at the moment given the 
the complexities of the country and the, the, the rapidity with which it's changing and perhaps that, that's not something that any of us should be even attempting to do to write the, the big South African novel. So that, And I, I like to think of myself as a kind of hyper-local writer as well. I'm very interested in the particularities of place. I've always written about Cape Town in one, one way or another and I do quite like the idea of um, tackling, tackling my little piece of earth um, again and again from different angles. Um, I could probably do that quite happily for the rest of my writing career. Yeah. I have a question for Julie. Um, I think you said at the beginning that the impetus for writing the book was your kind of soul searching about whether you had given enough as a mother to, to know what you learned about yourself through the process of writing the book. I think I learned that you can never give enough. <laughs> it's um, you know you give you give as much as you can, but it's um, after a certain point, children become their own beings, right? And what that is um, is influenced in part, only in part, by what you've given, or at least that's how it played out um, in this in this relationship between Satsuki and Dai Dai. Yeah. Was the character of Satsuki? I, I got the sense when you were reading that she seemed young. I don't know if she was young. Mm-hmm. She, like a, she appeared like a daughter figure. Yeah, well, I think that she um, kind of stopped maturing after um, her mother left her, that she, my, um, she tried to hang on to that moment and all of her responses came from those feelings that were generated either by that symbiotic relationship or by the desertion of her mother. And she's um, intelligent, but um, she... um, uh, yeah, and, and manipulative. So that Dai um was trying to find something more um, in the relationship with her. As it went along. Mm-hmm. Does Dai's mistrust of Satsuki come from a distrust culturally? Because one is Japanese, one is Japanese yeah. American. I wondered um, if I should have mentioned that Dai Dai is um, mixed race. So her father is Irish and her mother is from Japan. So I was also, I, mean, I thought it was interesting. Um, that Henrietta was saying that she has that one patch of land in Cape Town that she could write into endlessly. And um, I have this Japanese-American population and all of my narrators and um, all of my characters really are women. So I think that that's really my fascination and my obsession. And in terms of the culture, I think, yes, the, um, I think as I was growing up, my literary influences were Japanese from Japan. I was fascinated by Mishima and Kawabata and the classic male Japanese writers. And yet my um, personal influences were my mother and my father and my aunties and my big family here that really um, was not Japanese. It was Japanese-American. So I think in a lot of the work, I've um, wrestled with that cultural divide. I also really think that um, you know time is such a strange thing. Um, I think in a lot of my work, um, I think a lot of what influenced me happened to me as a really young child. And I think because I did have a childhood that was 
really pretty secure that um, have a really sharp memory. Like my memory is kind of like somebody with Alzheimer's, <laughs> you know, like I, the, the deep things from the deep past are very, very vivid to me and always have been. And then so much happened after I left home. My life became really different once that happened. And I don't know, I don't, I don't really remember. I mean, I see like a college transcript or something that I've kept away and I don't really remember those things happening to me. But, you know, up to a certain very young age, I remember, I feel that I remember everything. It might be that I'm imagining it, but I do feel that I remember those, those deep memories are really vivid. Everybody had enough? <laughs> yeah? Could I, I, I also just want to take the opportunity quickly to also just say thank you so much to Unnamed for everything you've done. We were just talking about how, how gorgeous our books look alongside each other and uh, thank you so much for doing such a, such a beautiful job and for, for helping me be here tonight. It's um, yeah, enormously appreciated. And thanks to Skylight. It's what a, what a gorgeous bookshop. Um, great pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't checked out the Unnamed catalogue, um, a half dozen of the books that I've been fortunate enough to read in the last year have been unnamed titles, and they're really wonderful. So I, I hope that people will check them out. Yeah. And thank you, thank you Skylight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.